Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Swoo Soul Stories, and today we've got a really great and special interview for you guys as I'm joined by Dr. Stacy Johnson and Kira Williams, uh, who are both here to talk to us about disease transmission, especially in the light of the pandemic that we're facing as a country. So uh, both of you, hey, thank you so much for joining me. And before we get started, uh, Dr. Johnson, kind of tell everybody um, your academic record and then your new role here at Southern Wesleyan. Sure. So, um, I'm Dr. Stacy Johnson. I'm an associate professor of biology at Southern Wesleyan. Um, my background, I started at the university of Tennessee and completed a bachelor of science in animal science, um, specifically with an emphasis on science and technology. I then came to Clemson University to do a master's degree in animal physiology. And then after a bit of a break, I went back to Clemson and finished a PhD in engineering and science education. Um, So I right now and for the past five or six years have taught uh, microbiology at Southern Wesleyan. So I get to teach all of our biology and pre-med students that really important subject. And I also, for the past five years, have taught bioethics, um, along with some other classes within the department. And as of July 1st, I will become our new chair of the Division of Science. So um, that... I think gives you all the information you needed about me. I will say that I've worked with several students over the years, specifically doing either endocrinology or physiology honors research projects. And I'm extremely proud because Kira was one of my students who did that work with me. And so I was really excited when she agreed to be a part of this podcast. Uh, So Kira, tell everybody a little bit about yourself and, you're starting medical school tomorrow. So thank you for squeezing yeah. us in. OMG, it's still very surreal. So we're still trying to process, but it's okay. Um, yeah, like Dr. Johnson said, I am a SWU uh, alum. I actually graduated from Southern Wesleyan in 2018, uh, which is crazy to think about now. Um, and during that time, did uh, all science courses. Every course that Dr. Johnson taught, I sat in. So I was there. Um Loved all four of my years. It was really a great time, really transformative for me. Um, being able to see God in science was something that was so unique and so powerful for me. Um, so I did honors research, like Dr. Johnson said, really loved that. Um, had a great time just being able to take very abstract ideas and put kind of concrete hands on those concepts. And that was great. Um, after I graduated uh, from Southern Wesleyan, I took the gap year. Um, and during that year, I worked at Prisma Health Upstate and I worked for a medical internship called the Medical Experience Academy, um, helping students kind of matriculate into either med school, dent school, PA school, um, whatever their medical path was. So I did that for a year. Um, and then last year, I started a master's in health science at Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee. And I graduated with my master's actually a couple weeks ago. Um, and we'll be starting medical school here uh, at Meharry tomorrow, like you said, which is very overwhelming to think about. Um, but 
I'm so honored to be here because I don't think I'm qualified, but Dr. Johnson thought I was qualified, which means so much to me. So I'm super, super excited to be here with you guys. So before we get into the interview, I just want to say, first of all, to everybody, this is not going to be uh, an exhaustive conversation on this subject. We want to kind of hit some high points. We want to cover the basics, and our goal is to give listeners uh, a solid source of information, uh, really good information. That's why we wanted you to hear uh, Dr. Johnson and, and Kyra's background. Uh, so here we go. First of all, you know, coronavirus is going around and disease and virus. So could you guys just tell us what's the difference between a disease and a virus? Okay, so um, that is a good question. Um, obviously, viruses we talk about a lot. Um, we know flu, influenza is a virus. Um, we talk a lot about stomach viruses. Um, so... A virus is basically a non-living thing that can make you sick. <laughs> so um, viruses have a little piece of DNA, which DNA is the coding portion. Basically, it gives all the instructions for a living thing. And a virus does have DNA, but it can't do anything on its own. It literally must invade another host uh, and their cells to be able to replicate or make copies of itself. So, um, and that's true for all viruses, whether we're talking about influenza or we're talking about um, rotavirus, which often causes stomach mm. discomfort and pain or, or whatever we're talking about. So, um, and, and coronavirus is the actual classification name of this virus of how we group things together so if you think about the animal kingdom we we group um, creatures that have six legs and an exoskeleton and are small and usually often fly around as insects uh, we classify things that have hair and a vertebrae and those kinds of things as mammals and so coronavirus is a classification of viruses so that's why we call it what we call it, similar to influenza virus. Influenza virus is a similar, that's the classification. So all influenza viruses are not exactly the same, but they have common um, targets and they have common DNA sequences and they have some common things, just like all coronaviruses have some common things that cause them to be grouped together. So diseases, however, can be caused by lots of things, not just viruses. Diseases could be caused by bacteria. Um, diseases could be caused by protists. Um, a very famous um, gory one right now is um, we talk about necrotizing fasciitis, which is actually a protist that causes um, tissue damage. Um, so a disease, though, is a group of signs and symptoms where we've disrupted the body's normal form or function. So when we're talking about coronavirus, the disease certainly is causing a very characteristic group of symptoms like a high fever. Um, we often are seeing um, damage to the lungs, which obviously presents itself with coughing or sneezing or trouble breathing or shortness of breath and, and those kinds of things. So 
Um, we also know that there are other diseases that might have a similar profile, that we know there are other diseases that can cause fever, coughing, sneezing, shortness of breath. Um, and so, but, but when we do these tests, we know that um, the tests can identify the particular um, causative agent, whether that's an influenza virus, a coronavirus, or maybe um, a bacteria that could cause even the same types of symptoms in an individual. So that's really the difference. Viruses can cause disease. And I would like to say not all viruses even cause disease in humans. Mm. Um, there are lots of, I mean, there are viruses that only can um, infect plants, but they can't infect humans. Um, likewise, the coronavirus doesn't infect plants. <laughs> it only is infecting um, humans. And perhaps I haven't been keeping up as much with the latest about how we feel like animals may be a reservoir here. Um, but um, diseases aren't only caused by viruses. Um, diseases can be caused by lots of things. It just so happens that we're talking about a virus that is causing a very specific disease. And in this case, it's a virus that literally was unknown to man until a few months ago. That's why we call it a novel coronavirus because it is brand new and literally um, these past, at this point, six months, um, we have been able to amass all the knowledge that we're hearing because we didn't know anything about it before right. then. Now, I know that there are some diseases that are hereditary. Uh, are there any viruses that can be passed on from a parent to a sibling? So... There are viruses that can actually cause what we might call non-infective diseases. So we, we've actually found that there are some viruses that can uh, predispose or actually cause cancer. Um, but the virus itself, um, it would have to actually infect the germ cells, so ova or sperm, to be passed from parent to child. And to my knowledge, Carrie, you can correct me if I'm wrong, to my knowledge, we've never seen a virus that can be passed um, in that kind of hereditary manner. Um, now, we do know, and HIV is a good example of this, that there can be maternal to fetal transmission of viruses, right. that if the mother is infected with that virus, in particular HIV in this case, um, if there are not specific drugs, and there are specific drugs now that can block the transmission of HIV to the unborn and soon to be born child. And, um, but that's not the same as a hereditary disease, which you might think of like cystic fibrosis or, um, I mean, cystic fibrosis is a easy one to think about that that is passed by genetics and can cause different respiratory or digestive problems. Um, and that is, that's not caused by any kind of outside source. It's caused by your own genes not functioning in a normal way. Um, but I don't know of any viruses that can transmit that way. However, there, as I said, there can be maternal to 
fetal transmission of certain diseases and certain infective agents. Kira, any any uh, thoughts on um, any of that? That's a lot of Actually, information yeah, that to was process. So perfect. I don't have a whole lot extra to add. I think the only thing I guess I would add is that kind of also shows the distinction between a virus and a disease, because there are a lot of diseases that would be considered hereditary. So you see that especially in like sickle cell disease mm. um, that are hereditary that you kind of can you can do testing to determine early versus a virus where that isn't hereditary and it typically is happening either through the birth canal or through an exchange of fluids um, because the chain of infection for viruses um, is kind of unique to its grouping versus a disease. There are a lot of different ways one can um, get a disease. Interesting. Interesting. Um, well, Kira, let's start with you for the second question is um, what are we finding out is the diff- uh, difference in the way that COVID-19 is transmitted? Well, how is that different? from other viruses that we've seen? Sure. Um, So I guess the best way to kind of explain it, I think Dr. Johnson did a beautiful job. Um, COVID-19 is a novel virus. So COVID-19 in and of itself is a part of that coronavirus family. So while we don't necessarily understand the specifics of COVID-19, because we understand coronaviruses as a whole, we can kind of infer based on what we know about coronaviruses, it's transmission. So the transmission of COVID-19 in particular is not super unique. It has very similar transmission to what you'd see in like influenza. Um, So in theory, there's an idea that's called the chain of infection. So when you have a reservoir, so in the case of COVID-19, that would be patient zero. That individual has the COVID-19 virus. And like uh, Dr. Johnson said, they're smart but dumb. So they can't do a whole lot on their own. So they have to invade a reservoir and replicate. So in patient zero, that COVID-19 virus in, became into the, got into that reservoir. Then over time, it starts to multiply and it starts to divide. And then through the spread of droplets, which is the transmission mode that comes through when you sneeze, when you cough, when you talk, which is why there's a six foot of precaution right now, um, because direct contact and droplets are the way that we're seeing that these viruses are transmitting to one another because viruses don't survive well in dry spaces. So there has to be some sort of moisture in order for uh, that virus to go from one person to the other. So we see that when a person sneezes, patient zero sneezes on patient one, those droplets get breathed in by patient one, they now are a susceptible host and it just keeps passing on and on. Um, What we are seeing with COVID-19 right now though, is what makes it a little unique compared to some other viruses is its ability to transfer as quickly as it does. It's a very infectious uh, virus, not as infectious as maybe measles, but more so than influenza, which is why we're really making sure to push those precautions now because it's a very, 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 infectious um, virus. On top of that, it is very sustainable, which means that it can pass from one person to another very, very quickly, which is why in large groups, if one person, even if they aren't showing symptoms and they're an asymptomatic carrier, which means they have the virus but aren't showing signs of having that virus, if they are in a group of people, they can infect a lot of people being in that space because the virus can go from one person to another without stopping. It's a very, very 
very susceptible um, and sustainable virus. So we're seeing that the transmission in and of itself isn't unique, Mm. but because there's still so much we don't know, we're taking the necessary precautions because there are things we're still learning. So whether it survives on certain surfaces for long periods of time, that's why they're telling you to clean your surfaces and how close you become to one person. Those are things that we're still trying to figure out, uh, but we recognize that it is more infectious than influenza, less infectious than the measles, but the transmission, the best way to prevent that transmission is to make sure all the places that release moisture, so your nose and your mouth, are covered. Now, you mentioned um, you know, the asymptomatic carriers, which to me, I've never never heard of because you don't mm-hmm. you you don't hear about that with the flu like if someone's right. got the flu they've got the flu and so you put them in their room and get them some Gatorade and mm-hmm. you know so how is that that's kind of been a game changer in all of this and I one mm-hmm. of the reasons we've kind of been doing all these precautions and uh, Dr. Johnson you and I were talking about uh how being outdoors uh, in is an environment that makes it less likely that uh, this virus might spread. Right. Um, and so I think there's a couple of differences there. So one, if we're talking about droplets. So let's imagine that a group of people are outside. And I mean, there's even been some, there's continuing conversation is if six feet is adequate if somebody right. is really a lot (laughs) Um, because that is really projecting those droplets far and wide but if you think about if you're outside and you're six feet apart um, there's all this open air there's wind that can displace those particles and they don't stay concentrated Um, so one thing that's really important to remember is that if you encounter a single coronavirus you are not going to get sick. You have to be taking on a large number of coronaviruses to actually get sick. And so being in the outdoors allows any droplets that are there to disperse. And so even if you encountered some of them, you would encounter a lower number than you would if you were perhaps inside. Um, The other thing that I think is really important to think about is that it is true that there are asymptomatic carriers for several diseases. Um, One that you may have heard of is strep. So you can have an asymptomatic carrier. They never get strep, but everyone around them gets strep. (laughs) Um, And so that's the same kind of thing that we're seeing here. Um, And the other thing that's happening is we can have a very long incubation period for COVID-19. Right, right. So you get exposed and you may not show symptoms for up to 14 days after exposure, but in that 14 day period, you might be able to infect someone else. So it is interesting. I actually read a a peer reviewed journal article that was looking at transmission from asymptomatic carriers to other individuals. And they're actually thinking that asymptomatic carriers may be less of a problem which if you're asymptomatic, that means you're not coughing and sneezing significantly, and therefore you're not shedding a lot of viruses out into your environment. But if you are in the pre-symptomatic phase, that 14 days before you actually get sick, 
we are seeing, because you do start to sneeze and cough before you have a fever and those kinds of things. Those are the individuals that are more likely to put it out there in the environment for others to get sick. But contrary to influenza, we have no drugs right now to treat this. So if you believe you get exposed to the flu and you start to get sick, well, you go to the doctor and they might prescribe Tamiflu or another antiviral drug that will lessen your symptoms and help you to get better faster. And while there have been some trials and a couple of bright spots, remdesivir um, has shown some promise as a particular antiviral that might have some impact on COVID-19. We don't have a reliable treatment like we do with Tamiflu or something like that with COVID-19. So it's one of those things that you just have to write it out um, and do supportive therapies, um, whether that's giving you oxygen or fluids or or whatever you may need to just basically support your body so it can fight the virus on its own. Right. So what what can people do to help protect themselves um, not just from COVID-19, but from other viruses, other diseases. Um, one thing I hope comes out of all of this is that we're all a lot cleaner, that we're all washing our hands. And so there's not just less coronavirus, but less flu and less a little bit of everything I think would be great. But what are some other um, some other things people can do to protect themselves? Uh, Kara, we'll start with you. Yeah, I think in terms of COVID-19 specifically, uh, wearing a mask is really important when you're going out um, into public spaces, um, just because we recognize that the droplets are a mode of transmission. Um, Wearing a mask is not just necessarily for you to keep your germs in, but to keep other people's germs out. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't often think of, um, is that really you're more concerned about making sure your germs don't get out in in case you are a pre-symptomatic or an asymptomatic carrier, Um, especially when dealing with very vulnerable populations. So those who may be immunocompromised, immunosuppressed, older, you want to be careful about, one, your interactions with them, um, because we did mention that direct direct contact is also a mode of transmission as well. So when you're spending a lot of close time with your grandma and your grandpa, especially in my age group of millennials, who think we're invincible and don't get sick, um, being cautious about spending a whole lot of extra time with them um, if you're not going to take the necessary precautions because we may be able to fight it off a little bit better in theory. Um, older people just aren't necessarily able to do that. I think disinfecting commonly touched surfaces, so doorknobs, kitchen counters, refrigerator handles, microwave handles, especially when you're living with other people, um, being cautious of making sure you're sanitizing all of those um, areas with something that says that it kills viruses and bacteria. Um, just cleaning it just with like soap and water may not necessarily do the trick, but there are a lot of disinfectants. So things like Lysol, things like that, that really will make sure that that's a clean disinfectant, not necessarily sterilized because that's very hard to do, but a disinfected uh, surface. So you're killing as much as possible and just basic hygiene. I think a lot of times we don't often think we think we wash our hands before we eat, not to use the bathroom that that's sufficient, but making sure that you're washing your hands sufficiently. Um, the happy birthday song twice is the way that I do it. Um, and you realize how long you don't wash your hands when you sing happy birthday twice. So doing things like that is important, but also just staying up to date 
um, not being in fear, because I don't think this virus is meant to promote fear, uh, but really being cautious of doing what you need to do. And if you don't feel well, don't go out places. Don't if you don't have to feel obligated to go out, stay inside. Honestly, you should probably stay inside anyway. But if you don't feel well, stay home, take care of yourself, because we don't have a vaccine right now. We don't have anything that has been proven to cure COVID. So taking care of yourself at home, doing what you need to do to stay in the comfort of your home is what's best for everybody. And because we recognize that this is a public health issue, um, you can't just really be concerned about yourself. You have to be concerned about your neighbors, too. So making sure that you're doing what you need to do, not only to protect yourself, but to protect those who may not be able to protect themselves. And I think one thing that's really interesting, we've seen there's been a lot of discussion about whether you should wear masks or not. Um, and so, um, one thing that I would say, I think is really interesting about wearing a mask. Um, if you remember when COVID-19 first kind of came into the news, there was a news conference that has been, there have been so many memes made of this news conference where they're saying, don't touch your face, don't touch your face. And then they start counting how many times the people saying, don't touch your face, actually touch their own face. Um, we're, we do that a lot. And so when we think about droplet transmission, so if someone has sneezed on their own hand and then opened a door and then you open the door after them and then you rub your face, you just gave yourself a nice dose of viral particles. So, but if you're wearing a mask, you're a lot less likely to rub your own face or to touch your face when you're out and about. So, in addition to break, to um, minimizing the viral particles that may be getting out there in the environment, wearing a mask actually discourages you yourself from touching your face, um, which we know is a way to minimize transmission to new hosts. Um, and the one thing I would say, because I've heard this question a lot, is isn't wearing a mask almost dangerous? Because I don't know how many of you have seen this, but there have been lots of articles on Facebook about how you're going to get hypoxia, which means that you're not going to get enough oxygen to your brain or you're going to retain too much carbon dioxide if you wear a mask. Um, so let's do a quick chemistry lesson um oxygen is an atom it's t it's way smaller than a virus like infinitesimally like thousands hundreds of thousands of times smaller than a viral particle and we we have also would say that very few masks would clear out 100 percent of the viruses in the air um you would have to almost be in a respirator to say i am not getting any viral particles at all so the masks are, you can't say that that's going to provide 100% protection, even though we know that it will block out some of the viruses. And we've already said that you need more than a few viruses to get sick. So it can have a protective impact there. But if we, if it can um, block out not even all the viruses, there's no way it can block either carbon dioxide coming out of you or oxygen coming into you. Now, it may be uncomfortable <laughs> um, because they're different masks um, and the amount of time you're wearing them. It, it's a new thing. So it might not be the most comfortable thing, but at the same time, you shouldn't feel concerned that you're actually depriving yourself of oxygen, which you clearly need. That's very important. Nor are you retaining too much carbon dioxide by wearing a mask. 
Um, so you're perfectly safe from that. But I think the big impact of a mask is, like I said, it prevents you from touching your face as much. And therefore, when you go home, you wash your hands, you pull off your mask without rubbing all over the outside of it, where you might have collected some particles, wash your hands again, and you've probably prevented any exposure that you may have had, either from your own hands. Um, another thing I would say is that covering your cough and your sneeze is pretty important, but to not do so in, with your hand. Um, I've seen people call it the vampire sneeze. Yes, but I was going to ask about this. Elbow. Sneezing into your elbow, coughing into your elbow, because then if you aren't able to disinfect your hands, either with hand sanitizer or by washing them right after you cough into them, you can still open doors and touch surfaces without infecting those surfaces with additional viral particles. Excellent. Uh, Dr. Johnson, you uh, mentioned reading uh, a peer-reviewed article. And during this time, I have I have tried to, to read. Some, it's just... Some of that stuff is very difficult reading. And so I would love to ask you both, what are, you guys are, very, you guys are on the front lines of, of, of being curious about this, of wanting to know everything you can. What are the, the sources and the resources that you turn to to get your information um, about COVID-19 and, and other viruses and diseases that maybe the common layperson may not know about. It's, but it's not the typical news site. It's a reputable uh, site for resources. Sure. So for me right now, I'm reading mostly um, links from the South Carolina DHEC website or the CDC. Um, now, here's the thing I, I would point out. Uh, and here's what I think is kind of confusing to people is because this is a new virus and we're learning new things literally what we thought we knew about it six weeks ago may not still be what we think we know and so that's and so i think that has caused some people to be mistrustful yeah. of any of their sources because they're like well six weeks ago you told me to do this and now you're telling me to do the opposite and therefore i think you don't know what you're talking about <laughs> So let me clear up why they still, you can still trust that they know what they're talking about. So science as an enterprise is not a collection of facts. Science is a way that we discover new things. Mm. And so Kira and I have both talked about how COVID-19 is a novel virus. We literally, every piece of information that we really know about it, we have discovered within the past six months. Mm. So that means that, yes, there were labs and scientists on the front lines characterizing it, sequencing its DNA, um, doing all kinds of tests to learn everything we could so we knew it was a coronavirus and not an influenza virus or something else. Um, but what happens is so you get a group, you get data, you get a publication out, um, and then other labs try to replicate that, or they extend the work that you just did. Well, that new information might be contradictory to what we knew in the beginning, but now three labs have information that says, oh, what we thought we knew six weeks ago is actually not the whole story. Mm. So we need to, we need, and it's not necessarily that it's completely different information, but it might change the recommendations 
of how to protect yourself or how to treat the disease. So what you're actually seeing um, as a non-scientist is how science works, that you have one study, lots more studies happen, and new information emerges from those new studies. And that new information now helps us to refine what we were doing. If you, I've been following the, um, the worldwide statistics on t- in terms of um, the number of people who've recovered completely from coronavirus, as well as those who have unfortunately died. Mm-hmm. And our percentage of deaths has greatly dropped. When I first started following it, it was 5% of all people who um, were infected or recovered, but basically of all the people that it was resolved, they either recovered or died, 5% of them died. We're now down to 2%. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason for that is that we continue to have this research that's happening behind the scenes um, by medical doctors, as well as PhD biomedical scientists. And they continue to learn more and more about the disease, about how it is infecting people and about how it's transmitted. And all of that information is allowing better treatments to happen that we didn't even know were possible or or were a good idea when all this started. So that's brought down the death rate. Um, but so from a reputable standpoint, I would say South Carolina DHEC and the CDC. Now, Kira, what, what are you finding? You just came out of a master's program talking all about this. Oh, yeah. So we definitely spent a lot of time making sure that we're cautious of what's reputable and what's not. And I think SWU helped a lot with that, too, especially doing research, um, being cautious of what articles and what things are reputable versus what's not. So we learned very early Wikipedia is not a reliable source. Um, so I think one of the things, at least for me, because I'm I'm a millennial, like I said, and we like things in short chunks. We don't need a whole lot of extra fluff, very short, quick to the point. Um, in the app store, if you own an iPhone, there's an app called COVID-19. Um, and it is actually uh, by the U.S. Department of Health, the CDC, um, Apple. They all came together and made a comprehensive app that has the updates that come from the CDC, U.S. Department of Health. Um, there's a screening tool there, so you can kind of put in your symptoms and see if you should go get tested or not. I highly recommend getting tested anyway if you're showing symptoms or if you've been exposed, but if you're one of those people that may want to make sure you need to go get tested first, there's a screening tool there. There's a lot of resources that they provide as to what the numbers look like, so I check that every now and then. Um, I do check DHEC because all my family is back in South Carolina, so I do want to see what's going on uh, back home in SC. Um, And I check Tennessee's Department of Health here, too. Um, Also, Johns Hopkins has a very comprehensive um, uh, system where they are keeping updated with not just the nation statistics, but global statistics. Um, And they have both a mobile and a desktop version of that. And so their researchers are constantly updating that with those numbers. So you can actually physically see in real time those numbers. Um, And I think it's really cool as a scientist to see how the graphs change. It's just, it's a very great thing. I love numbers. Uh, But I think what this is teaching us is that research, like Dr. Johnson said, it's all evolving. Um, Because this is such a new thing, we are trying to figure out Uh, what's going on. We're trying to figure out what this is. Um, So I would be cautious of social media articles um, 
I would kind of take most, if not all of them, with a grain of salt, simply because there are a lot of conspiracy theories out there, a lot of um, ideologies that may not be backed up by actual research. So I would be cautious about um, reading articles that you might see on social media, even if they are shared by somebody you trust. Just be cautious of those. I think if you want the hard-hitting true the cdc your state's dhec um all of those institutions would be the best place to look um and also social media uh by those reputable sources if you just have to be on social media um as opposed to looking at the article shared by your cousin uh go look and see what the cdc is posting and see what your state's health department is posting and the u.s department of health those places are posting constantly reputable um, research updated uh, stats updated statistics so that would be a great place to look and I just think it's uh, it's honestly you have to be cautious of the research and be wary of the fact that just because it's changing doesn't mean we were wrong we're just becoming more correct and I think that's something that you have to realize with research and I know for my research we were we were pushing and there were so many questions we had to answer and questions from previous studies that had to make my study make sense and it was just a lot of I don't know where this fits but this is what I got so it's one of those Researchers are constantly doing that. So not thinking that because we may have told you to be five feet apart two months ago and now we're telling you to be six feet apart and the next week we tell you to be 10 feet apart, it doesn't mean that we lied. It just means with the information we had at that time, that's what we thought was best. And so really the evolution should be something you're grateful for because that means we're still studying it. So I think that's something to be cautious of. But there are apps uh, that are done by the CDC. So if you need something quick, that's great. Johns Hopkins is great. Um, CDC, DHEC. And check your state. Your state will be kept up to date too as far as those numbers. Yeah, I know um, you mentioned social media. I know on Facebook uh, here in our area, the Oconee County Sheriff, Mike Crenshaw, he post an update every day with just the facts you know just this mm-hmm. is how many cases we got representative neil collins out of pickens he does the same thing so i would encourage people wherever you're listening to this if you're on social media again like Kira said maybe not click on everything your cousin posts but your local representatives who are just sharing the statistics and the facts um that's a good place to get your your information um One thing I think would be pretty important um, when you're looking, because a lot of those sites, and one reason I like them is it does just report the facts. There are two pieces of information that are really important to look at. One is the percent positive. We know that pretty much across the United States, we continue to do more and more tests and more testing. And so um, if you're doing more testing, And because we know that there are a lot of people that have very mild disease or maybe asymptomatic completely, um, if you're doing more testing, you're going to find more people who have the disease or have COVID, whether they're ill themselves or not. So you need to look at the percent positive. Um, I was just looking today. um, There was a spike of cases Um, in South Carolina reported over the weekend. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the percent positive, um, our percent positive as of um, the 30th of May was eight and a half percent. And when you look over the past month, 
the line of our percent positive is flat. There doesn't seem to be a, a spike or an increase. So that's a positive piece of information. But if you're looking purely at the number of cases, it can look kind of scary because there was a spike. And not so it's important to understand that that, you know, we talk about statistics can lie. Well, if you don't look at all of those numbers, you can get some inaccurate information. The other piece of information that I think is really important to look at wherever you happen to be is also looking at hospital capacity. Mm. Because if you remember at the very beginning of this, one of the big feeders was that we would overwhelm the um, healthcare system in various areas. And therefore, people who were absolutely savable, if you will, that they just needed supportive therapies, could perhaps die because there was no way to give them supportive therapies, that all the hospital beds were full um, and that there was not a way to actually treat those people. Well, in South Carolina, as of today, our hospitals are at 65% approximately capacity and a very low percentage of those individuals are actually COVID patients. So, you know, there's still room in our area for people who might become sick to get the appropriate treatments that they need. So those are two additional pieces of information that I know the governors um, seem to be looking Mm -hmm. at and DHEC seems to be reporting. Um, But those are two other things that you can look at because if we do start, I imagine before we even get anywhere close to capacity Mm -hmm. of our healthcare systems, that we would see a return to some additional restrictions that have been loosened to not bump up on the fact of, well, what happens when we're at 99% capacity in the hospital systems? And now we have to make additional bioethical decisions about, well, who do we treat and why? We don't want to be clear. (laughs) Um, Also, um, one of the sources I check every day is healthdata.org, the Institute for... uh, no, I can't remember. Uh, health metrics and evaluation. They share some of the numbers you just said, where you can see for each state the number of hospital beds and kind of what percentage of those are being used. That's been interesting to follow. And and you know, it's that's one of those sites where they have projections. And as we've gone along, the projections have changed because, as you lady said, the research is changing, and we're learning more. We're learning more, and I. Like, I would just say to people, and I would say this to myself, and I have to say to myself, this to myself every day. Number one, chill out. And number two, the people who are, and I'm so grateful that there are brilliant people like you two and other people who are thinking about and working on stuff like this, but you're literally trying to fly an airplane while you're putting it together. And so we just got to be patient and we just need to pray for these folks and do everything we can to to make a difference. So I just want to thank you both so much for your time and just for the information that you shared. Uh, Kira, we are so proud of you and we'll be praying for you as you start medical school. Uh, real quick, so again, you have to excuse you know my ignorance sometimes. When people hear medical school, sometimes they don't know what precisely are you going to be, be studying there. 
Sure. So uh, the school that I'm attending is actually an historically African-American medical college, uh, one of the only four in the nation. So we have the highest rate of African-American physicians that come through this institution. Um, So basically the way medical school works is depending on it's everybody takes the same courses in the beginning and Mm -hmm. then you kind of veer from there looking at your specialty. However, for me, uh, part of my discipline is looking at public health because Mm -hmm. especially in this situation dealing with um, COVID and also dealing with how there are racial disparities that deal with COVID, which is a whole nother topic for another day. Um, What I've realized is that while COVID is definitely a public health issue from the um, idea of just education, there's also a lot of other economic and racial things that are making this uh, virus as expansive as it is. And so I will be doing my general um, education, but also doing some public policy and health policy things as well, um, emphasizing some of those bioethics things that Dr. Johnson talked about because that was one of my favorite classes in undergrad, um, kind of dealing with those tangible what-if scenarios. Um, ultimately, I feel like God is leading me towards family medicine um, so that I can spend a lot of my time in the trenches and kind of meeting people where they are um, because I'm a person that wants to know a little bit about everything. So as opposed to specializing in one target area, kind of focusing on health education, but also going to Title I areas where individuals may not be as health literate Mm. um, to provide education. So in times like this, people aren't as overwhelmed because I think those numbers are very, very scary if you just look at them at face value. Um, So being able to use these next four years, one, for me to learn as much as I can, but to be able to reciprocate just a little bit of that information um, to the underserved population. So Title I, remote areas, Mm. um, individuals who may not be able to have all of the resources that we have here. Awesome. Well, that's it. That's absolutely incredible. Again, uh, thank you both. This has been uh, just one of the most informative interviews we've done yet. The goal of Sue Soul Stories is to tell people's stories and to give out uh, great information and to encourage and educate and inspire you so you can hear from uh, faculty and staff like Dr. Johnson, so you can hear from uh, alums like uh, Kira and just we really just want to make a difference. And so you two ladies are making a huge difference. And uh, I just want to thank you again so much. And uh, God bless you both. And I hope to see you both soon. Thank you. Thank you.